thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, episode 9.4, No One's Ever Really Gone. Last time, we saw the Jedi claim victory in the New Sith Wars at the Seventh Battle of Rusan and lamented the death of the Old Republic. This time, the Sith survive in secret to perpetuate the rule of two, and our narrative ends. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. The New Sith Wars Part 4, the Darth Bane Trilogy Concludes. This will take us from 1000 to 980 BBY. When we left off, the Army of Light defeated the Brotherhood of Darkness at the 6th and 7th Battles of Rusan, and the Sith were presumed extinct following Lord Khan's use of the Thought Bomb in 1000 BBY. However, two members of the Sith... Darth Bane and his new would-be apprentice Zana secretly survived the Seventh Battle of Rusan. With the Light and Darkness War and new Sith Wars concluded, the Jedi and Republic set about rebuilding the galaxy. Tarsus Valorum was elected Supreme Chancellor and he worked with Jedi Master Valentine Farfala to implement the Rusan Reformations. These sweeping reforms would abolish the Republic military, reorganize galactic boundaries, empower the Galactic Senate, and take political power from the Supreme Chancellor. The changes to the Jedi were also far-reaching as they centralized all training on Coruscant, renounced their political and military titles, and once again became the protectors of peace and justice. When it was all finally agreed upon and ratified, the Galactic Standard Calendar was reset to zero, thus laying the Old Republic to rest after 24,053 years. At this moment, you might be wondering aloud to yourself, why would the people's history of the Old Republic podcast still be going if the Old Republic died last episode? Well, that's a valid point. It's also technically incorrect because Darth Bane Rule of Two begins before the Rusan Reformations and is therefore part of the Old Republic era. But we also have to cover the final novel in the Bane trilogy, Dynasty of Evil, because it would be rude to leave you hanging after covering only the first two entries. For this reason, this episode focuses on Bane and Zana almost exclusively, that we will wrap up any loose ends we find laying around. All of that will take us up to 980 BBY, which is where our narrative will truly conclude. Then, next time, we will wrap up the show after more than two years by looking to the future of the Old Republic in canon. But first, we need to get a few canon alerts we missed last episode out of the way. Canon Alert 53, Rusan Reformations. The Rusan Reformations were canonized by name in a 2019 tabletop RPG sourcebook called Collapse of the Republic. In canon, the Rusan Reformations are a set of laws that abolish the Republic military, remove power from the Supreme Chancellor, and mark the end of the Old Republic. They are broadly similar to those in Legends, but we don't know any specifics about the Reformations just yet. 
Though the planet Rusan has also been canonized by name, it seems unlikely that they will keep this name for the overall reformations unless everything follows the same course as it did in legends, but that also seems unlikely. So there's a decent chance they changed the proper name, but in either case, a version of the Ruslan reformations occurred about 1000 years before the events of the prequels. We don't know anything more outside of this very general description at this time. Then we have Canon alert 54 Tarsus Valorum. The character Tarsus Valorum was canonized by name in James Lucino's 2014 novel Tarkin and later expanded upon by the tabletop RPG sourcebook Rise of the Separatist. In canon, Valorum's general story is mostly unchanged from legends. He was the first Supreme Chancellor to serve after the uh, defeat of the Sith. He created and championed the Rusan Reformations, or whatever they were being called, following the Jedi-Sith War. Valorum's reforms fully remade the Republic and Galactic Society, resetting the calendar year to, to resetting the calendar to year zero, and ushering in the era of the Galactic Republic. Finally, Finnis Valorum, the beleaguered Supreme Chancellor during much of the events of the Phantom Menace, is a direct descendant of Tarsus. So, much like his portrayal in Legends, Tarsus Valorum is one of the most important people in galactic history. Canon Alert 55, The Brotherhood of Darkness. The Brotherhood of Darkness has been referenced in canon a few separate times, though it seems to have changed meaning in the process. In Legends, the Brotherhood was the final iteration of the new Sith, formed under Lord Khan to rise and oppose the Jedi and Republic. In canon, the term Brotherhood of Darkness seems to simply apply to the martial forces of the Sith Empire near the fall of the Old Republic. In canon, Darth Bane was said to be a member of the Brotherhood of Darkness, but left to establish his rule of two. Around 1032 BBY, the Brotherhood of Darkness was defeated and dissolved by the Republican Jedi, with the Sith barely surviving under Darth Bane. Canon Alert 56, the Army of Light. The Army of Light was canonized by Endless Vigil, a scenario in the 2016 tabletop RPG rulebook Endless Vigil. Since this comes from an RPG sourcebook, it could be considered non-canonical, but it seems like this was an explicit attempt to reference them in canon. In Legends, the Army of Light was formed under Lord Hoth to oppose the Army of Darkness. In canon, the Army of Light appears to have been an army of Jedi who led a series of crusades against the Brotherhood of Darkness at an unknown time during the Old Republic. And that's all we know of them for now. Canon Alert 57, Colto. In episode 9.2, we covered Canon Alert 49, just a veiled reference to the Colto crisis on Manan made in the first High Republic novel, Light of the Jedi. However, we noted that Colto had yet to be canonized by name at that point. Well, in Claudia Gray's follow-up to Light of the Jedi, Into the Dark, Colto is referenced by name and is said to be vital to Manan's economy. As you no doubt remember, Colto is a healing substance similar to Bakta that was created for KOTOR. The Sith Survive At the very end of episode 9.3, we started Darth Bane Rule of Two, the second novel in Drew Karpishian's Bane trilogy. 
We mostly use that time to cover the Rusan Reformations and the end of the Old Republic, but we also covered the novel's prologue, which focuses on Bane and Zana escaping Rusan in 1000 BBY. Returning to the Brotherhood of Darkness camp, they found some mercs in the middle of looting. Bane killed four of them, but two of the mercs escaped. Before departing Rusan, Bane also allowed Zana's cousin Derivit to live, which will be a problem in the future. In the camp, Bane and Zana found a scroll that mentioned a Sith Lord named Friedenad and the planet Onderon. Before leaving, Darth Bane gave Zana one final test, ordering the girl to make her way from Rusan to Onderon within ten days. Bane quickly taught Zana how to use the Force to make herself stronger and faster, and then departed aboard his ship, the Valson. Zana was understandably perplexed by this. Even if she was strong in the Force, she was ten years old and had no formal training. It seemed like a cruel joke, and Zana resented being the butt of it. But Zana was resourceful and clever, and she soon came upon some human travelers loading a ship to depart the planet. Zana presented herself as Rain, a refugee orphaned by the war, and was invited aboard the shuttle. Zana asked to be taken to Onderon, but the family on the shuttle was wary of taking a 10-year-old girl somewhere without supervision and decided to take her to the Republic for processing. Zana briefly considered taking this route since she had only recently met, met Bane and was already tired of being on the run. However, she was persuaded against joining the family by their youngest son, who said their existence was tough and they couldn't protect themselves. After hearing this, Zana resolved to honor her promise to Bane and promptly found a blaster in the back of the ship. Zana then used it to kill the mother, father, and their two sons before setting an auto- autopilot course for Onderon. Within seven days, she had arrived, but was immediately set upon by a gang of beast riders who wanted to steal her ship. The beast riders had her outnumbered ten to one, but then Zana saw Bane descending from the sky and knew that her assailants would pay. Seven days before, at the same time Zana began her test, Darth Bane traveled to Duxun, the first moon of Onderon. Bane had learned this was the true location of Frida Nad's tomb and the Sith knowledge he craved, believing he could learn much from Nad. During transit, the, uh, during transit, Bane experienced hallucinations of Cordris and Khan, each of whom derided Bane. After days of this torment, the shuttle arrived above Duxun, but in a fit of rage, Bane unleashed a wave of dark side energy that drove away the hallucinations, but also wrecked his ship. Bane survived the crash landing and made his way to Frida Nad's tomb. Within, the lone surviving Sith Lord located Nad's Sith holocron, but was attacked by two small, scarab-like insects that painfully burrowed into Bane's skin while leaving their outer shells exposed. Bane observed that the creatures couldn't be removed by conventional means, but found answers within the holocron, which called the parasitic creatures orbalisks. Nod's holocron explained that they feed on the dark side while also releasing an enzyme that increases the host body's strength and connection to the dark side. The creatures also multiply, covering the exterior of the host's body and providing armor that protects against most weapons, including lightsabers. The orbalisks were also incredibly painful to endure, and if one of them died, it would release a poison into the host's body that would kill even the strongest Force user within days. 
Choosing to turn these lemons into lemonade, Bane used the dark side and the newfound power of the Orbalisks to banish the hallucinations of Khan and Cordris from his mind permanently. He then dominated the will of a Drexel, one of the flying beasts used by the Beast Riders who have appeared numerous times since Tales of the Jedi. Within days, Bane's body would be fully covered in Orbalisks except for parts of his face, his palms, wrists, the soles of his feet, and a few other spots. Finally, Bane called upon the Force and created a bubble, which he used to allow the Drexel and himself to travel the few hundred kilometers between Duxun and Onderon. It wasn't the time of year when they shared atmospheres, apparently. As he descended to Onderon's surface, Bane saw Zana had successfully completed her test, but was being accosted by ten beast riders. Bane intervened, slaughtering the beast riders and their mounts in mere moments. With those formalities out of the way, Darth Bane formally took on the ten-year-old as his apprentice, and dubbed her Darth Zana, Dark Lord of the Sith. With an apprentice, Bane could begin to fully implement the Rule of Two and pass on his teachings. Returning to Zana's shuttle, the Sith Master and Apprentice departed Onderon, having solidified their alliance and Sith knowledge from Freedonad's holocron. In this way, Darth Bane gained an apprentice, Darth Zana gained a master, and the Rule of Two truly became a Rule of Two. From there, they traveled to Ambria in the outer, in the inner rim where much of Zana's training would occur in secrecy over the next ten years. But there were some who knew that the Sith had survived Seventh Rusan, namely the two mercs Bane let escape from the Brotherhood of Darkness camp and Zana's cousin Derivit. Bane's excuse for letting the mercs go was that rumors of Sith survival were good and no one would believe the word of a warrior for hire anyway. It's a fairly silly excuse, but not wholly, but not a wholly implausible one with regard to the Mercs. However, leaving Derivit alive was just plain stupid. Zana seemed reluctant to kill her cousin, which Bane appears to have accepted because she was 10 years old and it served as her last act of mercy. But Bane was not 10. He was a battle-hardened Sith Lord and student of the dark side. He should have known better. The Mercs will be a minor inconvenience, but in a decade, Derivit will cause the Sith serious problems. A short time, a short time after Darth's Bane and Zana left Onderon together, Padawan Yohun Othun was promoted to the rank of Jedi Knight by his new master, Valentin Varfala. Othun was ordered to help shore up Jedi support for the Rusan Reformations and, after those were implemented, was assigned to Supreme Chancellor Valorum's personal security. During this time, Othun learned that the Sith survived from one of the mercs who escaped Rusan. Though it was dismissed as nonsense by Farfalla, Othun believed the story and was always looking for info on surviving Sith. Ten years later... Rule of Two then jumps 10 years ahead to 990 BBY. Just like that, we're already a decade away from our dearly departed Old Republic, and this whole Galactic Republic thing feels strange and weird to us. During this 10-year period, much has happened in the galaxy, though we know very few specifics because that's just how these things go. The decade saw the implementation of the Rusan Reformations, the rise of the new Galactic Republic, and the general rebuilding of society. 
A thousand years of warfare had left the galaxy in bad shape with trillions dead and numerous worlds destroyed. So much work was done to rebuild those places. After going down in the outlying sectors in 1100 BBY, the holonet was once again reactivated and maintained across the galaxy, which allowed trade and widespread hyperspace travel to resume. The Republic had no military after it was disbanded and reorganized within the judicial forces, and the Jedi were once again serving as peacekeepers, having renounced their military and political titles. The Galactic Senate was conducting business, and the Supreme Chancellor's power had been greatly reduced. The Republic looked to be entering a new golden age, and many began to let their guard down. But some remained in a state of permanent vigilance, like Jedi Knight Johan Othon, no matter what anyone said, he believed that two Sith had survived. Yes, his belief was based on the word of a lone soldier for hire. And yes, his story about one of the Sith being a 10-year-old child seemed far-fetched. But Othone used the Force to probe the Merc's mind and found no deceit. Because the Sith were viewed as totally extinct by the Jedi, Republic, and pretty much everyone alive at the time, Othone's concerns were deemed utter nonsense. Shortly after the Rusan reformations were finalized in 1000 BBY, Othone was assigned to guard Valorum and represent the Jedi Order to the Supreme Chancellor. He was also told to drop the idea of surviving Sith by his former Jedi Master Farfalla. For a decade, Othone attempted to do so but couldn't shake his belief that the Sith yet lived. After all, that mercenary had been so damn sure of himself in the idea that and the idea that all the Sith were defeated during Seventh Rusan did seem far too convenient. So, Othone secretly sought out clues for ten years while serving as Valorum's bodyguard. Lil Xan. After leaving Onderon in 1000 BBY, Bane and Zana traveled to the quiet inner rim world of Ambria and made a camp. They would remain there training in secret for the next ten years. Darth Bane spent, some, spent much of that time building up networks for the Sith to use, training his apprentice, and acquiring ancient Sith relics. Bane was able to afford this because the scrolls that they had discovered in the Brotherhood camp had belonged to Quartus, who had written a long series of numbers in the margins. These numbers were account details for a series of bank accounts where Quartus had squirreled away a secret fortune. Taking advantage of Cordis's mistake of writing down his PIN number, Bane used the credits to fund Sith operations. Darth Zana, meanwhile, learned much, learned much in that ten-year interval, becoming a powerful Sith Lord. In 996 BBY, when she was about 14, Zana built her first lightsaber. It was a red double-bladed lightsaber with a slightly longer hilt to accommodate her short height and petite body frame. If you think it's weird that we included that bit, you should know that Darth Zana's height is a plot point in Rule of Two, which also means it's technically correct to call her Lil Xan. While training Zana in lightsaber combat, Bane insisted that she master Form 3, also known as Suresu, which stressed a patient defensive approach to fighting. Bane questioned this, believing it to be against the Sith Code, Zana questioned this, believing it to be against the Sith Code, but Bane corrected her, explaining that his apprentice's short, stance, sh short stature necessitated the patient, cunning, and deceptive approach to combat. 
The master stated that in order for the rule of two to succeed, the Sith would have to use deception and cunning as their greatest allies in defeating the Jedi and the Republic. In the future, Zana's perfection of Ceresu will save both of their lives. Despite generally being a dumbass, Bane did have genuinely brilliant insights on occasion. One such example was his insistence that the Sith take over an intact Republic, not one broken into dozens of factions by civil war, because toppling one government is easier than toppling 20. Bane taught that the Sith should work with Separatist groups to strike the Republic, but they should do so before the Separatists gain too much power so as to weaken both groups. This would leave the Republic whole, but vulnerable when the time came to strike. Canon Alert 58. Darth Zana. Before being named, Bane's apprentice was, of course, canonized by reference after Darth Bane said he had to choose to pass that he chose to pass his knowledge to a lone individual in the 2014 Clone Wars episode, Sacrifice. Darth Zana was later canonized by name in 2016 in issue two of an official magazine called Star Wars Helmet Collection. The magazine went on for 80 total issues, lasting until 2019. In canon, Darth Zana was Bane's apprentice who learned all she could before betraying her master and killing him in the duel on Embria which is quite similar to what's about to happen in the narrative. After his death, Zana interred Bane's body in the Valley of the Dark Lords on Moraban, a.k.a. Korriban. Bane was the last Dark Lord of the Sith to receive the honor in canon. After Bane's death, Darth Zana took her own apprentice and perpetuated the Rule of Two. We do not yet know whether she was also short in canon like she was in Legends, so we'll refrain from calling her the canonical Lil Xan until we know more. Canon Alert 59, Tython The deep core world of Tython was created for Darth Bane Rule of Two in 2007 and was used as the homeworld of the Jedi in later Legends works such as the Dawn of the Jedi series that takes place in 36,453 BBY and Swotor, which we discussed at length. Tython was canonized by name on a map in the 2016 reference book Star Wars Complete Locations. The world later appeared in issue 40 of the Dr. Aphra comic and most prominently served as the setting for episode 6 of season 2 of The Mandalorian, which aired in late 2020. However, Tython is not the Jedi homeworld in canon. That was established to be Octo by The Last Jedi, though Tython is shown to be a Force Nexus in The Mandalorian. There's also some confusion about Tython's location in canon. Reference books refer to it as being in the deep core, like in Legends, but one character in The Mandalorian seems to imply it's in the Outer Rim. It's located. Its location within the galaxy is of little overall importance, but it's probably still in, in the deep core. The planet's biome also seems to have changed, as it now looks a lot like the hills outside Hollywood in California, where The Mandalorian is filmed, which is probably just coincidental. By 990 BBY, 20-year-old Lil Zan was beginning to question her master. Darth Bane's knowledge of lightsaber combat and physical uses of the Force, such as choke and lightning, were unparalleled, but he was almost comically inept at Sith magic. He couldn't even make rudimentary Sith magic work and knew little about the practice generally. Darth Zana, conversely, was one of the most skilled practitioners of Sith magic to ever live. 
She learned many spells, incantations, and rituals from Frida Nott's Holocron in 1000 BBY and began creating her own a few years later. Her Force Concealment spell was so powerful that its effects lingered for years after its use and she could drive most beings to insanity by projecting horrific images into their minds. So Darzana doubted Bane's abilities, but she also doubted his decision-making. Bane had been stuck on Ambria for a decade, unable to venture off-world because the Orbalisks made him instantly recognizable. All off-world business had to be done by Zana, and Bane stewed in his solitude. When Rule of Two picks up in 990, Bane was alone again after sending Zana to stoke a powerful separatist movement on the planet Sereno. There, Darth Zana seduced a Twilight separatist captain named Kalad Den and fed him information on Supreme Chancellor Valorum's upcoming visit. Kaladin separatists were becoming too powerful and thus had to be induced to strike too early by the Sith, lest they become a true threat. At Zana's urging, Kaladin agreed to move forward with the plan to kidnap the Supreme Chancellor. In this way, the Sith began subtly manipulating galactic events to their liking. When Zana returned to Ambria, she found their camp was in ruins, though she soon learned the culprit had been her master. Bane attempted and failed to build a Sith holocron for the third time, and in a fit of rage, he destroyed the camp by lashing out with dark side energy. Two previous attempts had also been dismal failures, one of which nearly killed Bane. Seeing this only caused Zana's concerns about Bane to grow, as he seemed to be relying so heavily on the Orbalisks to fuel his anger that they were causing him to make stupid decisions. Zana encouraged Bane to find a way to free himself of the creatures as the Orbalisks seemed to hurt him far more than they helped. On Sereno, Kaladin and a strike team of his fellow Separatists staged a daring attack on Supreme Chancellor Valorum during his visit to the planet. Unbeknownst to the Separatists, Tarsus Valorum was still protected by Jedi Knight Johan Othun, who killed most of the insurgents, including Kaladin, after a protracted duel. Only two Separatists survived, fleeing back to their hideout to report their failure to Hetton, the group's shadowy financial backer. Shortly thereafter, Zana arrives to check on the progress and was detained by the two surviving insurgents, though she killed one and drove the other insane. But Hetton was different. He bowed before Darth Zana and showed her his collection of Sith artifacts. Zana was largely disinterested in Hitton's wares until he mentioned the Sith Lord named Belia Darzu, who had a stronghold on Tython and was said to be a master of building Sith holocrons. Info on holocrons was what Zana was truly seeking as she hoped to give knowledge to Bane. Hetton was Force-sensitive and had always been enthralled with the Sith, but didn't join the Brotherhood of Darkness because he viewed Lord Khan's teachings on the Sith as false. So he's basically a Sith and Rule of Two fanboy. Hetton promised to give Darth Zana hyperspace coordinates to Tython if she took him on as her Sith apprentice, an express violation of the Rule of Two. Zana agreed, but had no intention of honoring anything as she simply wanted the location of Tython. But Zana feigned agreement, got the coordinates to Tython, and traveled with Hetton and his eight 
personal Umbaran shadow assassins to Ambria, where they would ambush Darth Bane. On Ambria, the shadow assassins got the drop on Bane, but were no match for him and were ruthlessly cut down. Bane then fought Hetton, who was easily overpowered and killed, while Zana watched on. Zana expected to have time to give an explanation, but was instead immediately attacked and overpowered by Bane, who began pummeling his student for her betrayal. After a few moments, Zana was able to explain that she had only been using Hetton to obtain the location of Tython and find the secret of creating Sith holocrons. Bane survives on his test of his skills, proving that he could focus and bend the Orbalisk to his will. Meanwhile on Coruscant, Johan Othon was working on yet on another pet project of his. For some time, Othon had wanted to build a memorial to the Jedi who died on Rusan ten years before. It was mostly meant to honor his former Jedi Master Lord Hoth, but was also intended to serve as a war memorial acknowledging the names and lives of all the Jedi who died during Seventh Rusan. Othon presented the idea to Valorum, who agreed to champion the proposal after his life was saved on Sereno. In order to obtain funding, the Jedi and the Supreme Chancellor approached Valentine Farfalla, but he disliked the idea and the Jedi Council subsequently rejected it out of hand. Both Farfalla and the Council correctly believed that this was Othon's attempt to honor Hoth specifically and not about memorializing all who died. However, the Council's formal public response to the request was shockingly tone-deaf and callous. The Jedi Council actually said that, Seven through sand and all who died there should be forgotten. Even if you're not a huge fan of war memorials, that's still a heartless and politically inept response. After these comments, polite society was scandalized and public opinion for the memorial skyrocketed. The Galactic Senate passed a funding measure giving Othone all the resources he would need. To avoid further PR fallout, the Jedi agreed to the proposal ex post facto. Days later, Johan Othon traveled to Rusan, which was now mostly covered in desert after seven battles, and the Sith Force Storm burned much of the planet a decade earlier. Othon began working on his war memorial, but he would soon cross paths with his other pet project, the survival of the Sith. On Rusan, Othon built the memorial in a large valley near the cave system where Khan detonated the Thought Bomb the entire area would come to be known as the Valley of the Jedi. It doesn't appear that Othon was aware of the orb that held the souls of all caught in the blast because he would have attempted to free them. After a few months, substantial progress was made, but the memorial had been vandalized and damaged several times by locals. Determined to catch those responsible, Othon hid at the site after work for a few days and eventually caught the culprit, a one-handed hermit named Darovit. Following his encounter with Bane and Zana after 7 through Sawn in 1000 BBY, Derevit became a hermit who wandered the planet, healing those who had been injured by the wars. For a time, he was stranded, but Derevit soon came to enjoy Rusan and was joined by some of the few remaining bouncers who hadn't died in the war. He became deeply distrustful of the Jedi and was the last person in the galaxy who could believably prove the survival of the Sith. After a few years, the people of Rusan simply referred to Derevit as the Healing Hermit. In 996, Derevit made a small hut in one of the world's few remaining forests, only a short trip from the site where Othone would build his memorial. 
because his time was spent in relative seclusion, Derivant never received a prosthetic hand to replace the one that Zana blew off. In 990, Derivant began sabotaging Othone's project as best he could, believing that funding would dry up if he damaged it enough times. Now see, at the beginning of this episode, you probably thought we weren't going to get into any political funding intrigue before the end of the narrative, but oh, how wrong you were, gentle listener. Oh, how wrong you were. Anyway, Johan Othone followed Derivit back to his hut, and they had an argument. Derivit was angry because Othone was bringing the Jedi back to the planet, something he desperately opposed. The healing hermit blamed the Jedi and Sith equally for the destruction of Rusan and the wider galaxy, while Othone asserted that the Jedi had only responded to Sith aggression and had wiped out the Sith as a result. Derivit scoffed at this assertion. Not only had the Sith survived, they'd blown off his hand during their escape. What's more, Derivit knew their names and his descriptions of the surviving Sith matched those given by the escaped Merc. Sure, the Merc's story could be discounted, but when a second eyewitness confirms that one of the Sith Lords was a ten-year-old girl, you can't really ignore that. Finally, after ten long years, Johan Othone had the smoking gun evidence of Sith survival that he needed, and Derivit agreed to tell his story to Master Farfalla. Within an hour, they had departed for Coruscant. At the Jedi High Temple, Othone went to convince a skeptical Farfalla to hear the story, leaving Derivit in the archives to study Force healing. Unfortunately, Derivit was kidnapped by Zana, who just happened to be working undercover on Coruscant at the time. Let's go to Tython. Alright, so let's back up a few weeks to the time when Othone was getting his monument started. At the time, Darth Bane and Zana were plotting how to improve the Sith position in the galaxy. Bane had to be rid of the Orbalisks because he was losing control of his own body due to the creatures feeding his connection to the dark side and making him stronger. They had become a crutch and Zana was worried she'd have to kill Bane if he didn't get rid of the things. So the scale armor had to go, but the only place in the galaxy that would have info on Orbalisks was the Jedi Archives on Coruscant. They checked everywhere else, but most bookstores don't have a section on dark side zoology. Zana agreed to go to Coruscant undercover training for weeks. She was taking the identity of a human Padawan named Nalia Adolu, who she resembled. For the past five years, Adolu had been researching the evolution of life and its effects on the Force with her master on her master's homeworld. Zana's cover story would be that Nalia was visiting the archives to research rare life forms, something the Jedi Padawan had done in the past. Zana studied surveillance footage and the dossier to to pattern her speech, stance, and posture exactly like Adolu did. This is also where Zana created her legendary concealment spell, which she used to hide her dark side presence in the force from the Jedi. After weeks of study, Zana traveled to Coruscant while Bane went to Tython using the coordinates obtained from Hedon to finally unlock the secret to creating a Sith holocron. In disguise, Zana searched the archives for Orbalisks, but her carefully laid plans were thrown into chaos by Derovit. While reading, Zana found something on Orbalisks, got very excited, and momentarily let down her guard, which broke her dark side concealment briefly. In that moment, Derovit noticed her and called out to her by a name that only he would know, Rain. Zana cursed her excitement and then cursed her cousin, who said he'd alerted the Jedi to the Sith's survival. Hearing this, Zana decided to kidnap Derovit and used an empty terminal 
to access an alternate hyperspace route to the deep core world of Tython and fled with her prisoner, Dorovit. While Rain and Tomcat had a cousin's field trip, Valentin Varfalo was starting to believe he had underestimated his former Padawan, Johan Othun, as evidence continued to mount that the Sith survived. Othun had been banging the drum for ten years, but now he had Derivit. Farfalla knew of both Derivit and the Sith Lord Bane from the Light and Darkness War and decided to hear the story. But Derivit was nowhere to be found. A witness pointed the Jedi toward the computer terminal that Zana had used, and they soon learned that Derivit and his kidnapper, who they assumed was one of the surviving Sith, were traveling to Tython. Farfalla immediately assembled a strike team to travel to Tython and eliminate the Sith permanently. Now you might assume that Valentin Varfali used his brain and had a strike team of 30 members to overwhelm the two Sith, but you would be wrong. Instead, he's going to do the other thing, the stupid thing. He didn't get enough Jedi to take down two Sith Lords. In addition to himself and Othone, Farfala recruited Masters Rasta Lasu and Warrer Dalmit and Jedi Knight Sarozaj. Now, to be fair, Farfalla wanted to keep it quiet, and Master Dalmat was there to provide battle meditation, so they didn't face down the Dark Lord of the Sith with just four Jedi, like Mace Windu does centuries later. However, Farfalla still should have known better, but he just didn't, and as a result, he will die like a chump for his lack of foresight. Meanwhile, Derivit spent the entire trip to Tython trying to convince Zana to abandon the dark side. Zana finally got tired of this and force choked her cousin into unconsciousness after telling him that the only reason he was alive was to heal Bane of the Orbalisks. On Tython, Zana located her master in Belia Darzu's fortress and filled him in on the details, and by that time, the Jedi strike team had arrived. So begins the final duel between the Jedi and the Sith until Qui-Gon Jinn fights Darth Maul in the sands of Tatooine over 900 years later. The Duel on Tython. The fight would occur in a large circular room within Belia Darzu's abandoned fortress. There was little in the way of monologuing or dramatic speeches, and the duel began as Farfla and Lasu invested Darth Bane, Othone, and Zaj targeted um, Darth Zana. The Daomat provided battle meditation to his comrades nearby. Bane started out by bull rushing his opponents, and though he received several direct lightsaber strikes, he was uninjured due to the Orbalisks. Bane then shot a torrent of force lightning at Farfala, which was absorbed by Lasu's lightsaber. Across the room, Zana was having some difficulty because Sarozaj used the Form 5 of light- for lightsaber combat, aka Shine or Gem So. When augmented with battle meditation, Zaz's powerful Form 5 strikes broke Zana's guard and caused her to briefly stumble. However, Othoan's lightsaber dueling skills just weren't up to the rest, and he seemed to get in Zaz's way, which Zana used to her advantage to regain her footing and even the fight. By this point, Farfala and Lasu had backed Bane up to stop his aggressive bull rushes, but if there's one thing Bane was good at, it was close quarters lightsaber dueling. At one point, he elbowed Lasu so hard it broke some of her ribs and left her gasping for breath on the floor. Farfala saved her life by blocking Bane's attempted death blows with the Force. Until that moment, the Sith had been so engaged 
with two opponents each, they didn't notice the fifth Jedi providing battle meditation to the others. But when Bane saw the Athorian Jedi Master in unguarded meditation, he rushed in for the kill. Unable to stop Bane's charge, Farfalla called out to Athone, who leapt to block Bane's path and engage him directly. Lasu and Farfalla arrived, and Bane was fighting one against three, forcing him to fight defensively against his nature. Othone then saw a small bit of flesh on Bane's wrist and hit it with his lightsaber, wounding and enraging the Sith Lord. The pain fueled Bane's dark side power in addition to the Orbalisks, and he blasted all three Jedi away with a wave of dark side energy. Bane once again went after War Dolmat, Dalmat, but the Jedi's life was saved when Othone force pushed him out of the way of Bane's lightsaber. Unfortunately for the Jedi, moving Dalmat broke his concentration, reducing their combat effectiveness significantly. Sarazaj, who had been dueling Darth Azana evenly, soon found his power diminished and his reaction time slowed, which was all the edge the Dark, the dark Lord needed. Zana deflected Zaj's lightsaber keenly, causing a stumble that she exploited ruthlessly. Zana had time to conjure her insanity spell using Sith magic to drive Zaj insane before running him through with her lightsaber. Thinking quickly, Zana cloaked her dark side presence with Sith magic, snuck up behind Raskta Lasu, and impaled her from behind, killing the Jedi Master instantly. Free of his third attacker, Bane disarmed Othone by severing his blood hand before downing Farfalla with brutal overhead strikes and brutally beheading the Jedi Master with a single stroke. Bane then found Dalmat and slashed his neck, mortally wounding the Athorian Jedi. Finally, Bane turned to finish off Othome with Force Lightning, but before he could do so, Dalmat intervened. Using his last ounce of strength, the Athorian Jedi encompassed himself and Darth Bane in a protective Force Bubble, causing Bane's lightning to reflect back, killing Dalmat and leaving Bane comatose. Bane only survived because of the Orbalist protection, but they were all dead from the Blast of Lightning. Now, you might think that's a good thing because he wanted the Orbalisk off in the first place, except that Orbalisk released toxins when they die. Very, very deadly toxins. The combo of Force Lightning and Poison meant Bane was on death's door and had a couple of days left tops. At this point, Derivit finally escaped the broom closet Zana had locked him in and informed his cousin of Bane's fate. Zana ordered Derivit to heal Bane, but he refused and said there was no known cure for Orbalisk poisoning. The only hero, the only healer Zana knew uh, knew of in the entire galaxy with a skill skill to fix Bane was Caleb, the healer from Ambria who had saved Bane's life in 1000 BBY after Githany poisoned him. Taking Derivit and the fallen Jedi's lightsaber, she moved Bane's body to her ship and departed for Ambria. Darth Bane's condition might at first seem like a good thing for Zana since she was concerned about his abilities as a master. But Zana knew deep down that she wouldn't be able to keep the Sith alive if Bane died without teaching her the rest of what he knew. With the future of the galaxy resting on the decision she made, Darth Zana was resolute and determined to save her master if for no other reason than she wasn't ready just yet. She triaged Bane's condition, 
on the ship during the short trip and then immediately took Bane's comatose body to Caleb's homestead. Caleb, of course, outright refused to help Bane. You'll recall that in episode 9.2, we discussed how Caleb healed Bane in a thousand BBY under duress after the Sith Lord had threatened his daughter with torture and death. But now, Caleb lived alone and his daughter grew up and moved away and he outright refused to heal Bane. No amount of torture was going to change his mind. It looked for all the world like the Sith and the Rule of Two would die on Ambria in 990 BBY, but then poor, naive Darovit had to step in and ruin everything. In another effort to redeem his cousin, Darovit mediated a solution. Caleb would heal Bane so long as Zana called the Jedi and alerted them to the Sith presence on Ambria and rendered her ship inoperable. Zana sent the message via a slow messenger drone saying that an infirm Sith lived on Ambria and scuttled her ship. Caleb upheld his end of the agreement by healing Bane, who awakened two days later free of the Orbalesks and their poison. Zana explained what she had done, and Bane, in his weakened state, begged for death. Before losing consciousness again, he told Zana to flee and take a new apprentice elsewhere. But Zana had learned her master's lessons about the Sith using cousin and deception well, and she was prepared. Besides, Caleb and Darovich should have known better than to bargain in good faith with the Sith. By now, dozens of Jedi knew that the Sith survived to some extent, so the Sith secret was out. The only way to continue the rule of two and the Sith was for the Jedi to believe that they had killed the last Sith themselves. Zana recognizes this before agreeing to contact the Jedi, and her message was intentionally vague, mentioning only an injured Sith. A day later, Darth Zana felt the presence of the Jedi nearing Ambria and put her plan into motion. She dismembered Caleb with her lightsaber, drove Derivit to insanity with Sith magic, and put Farfalla's lightsaber in his hand. Zana then hid with her master's unconscious body in Caleb's secret cellar and concealed their dark side auras with her mastery of Sith magic. This time, the Jedi did the smart thing and sent 14 members to confront the Sith, led by Jedi Master Thanatu. The Jedi approached Caleb's home, finding the dismembered corpse littered outside the front door. Before they could enter, Derivit emerged from the hut, babbling incoherently and brandishing Master Farfalla's yellow lightsaber. Driven to insanity by Zana's Sith magic, Derivit attacked on sight and was quickly killed by some of the Jedi on hand. The Jedi, quite rightly in our estimation, assumed that the man who had attacked them on sight was the Sith Lord from the message, Darth Bane. Derivit, who... Derivit, who they believed to be Darth Bane, attacked the Jedi immediately as a Sith would. He also wielded Farfalla's lightsaber, and the lightsabers of the other four Jedi who had perished on Tython were piled outside the entrance. To the Jedi, it seemed clear what had happened. The Sith had killed the Jedi strike team on Tython and taken their lightsabers as trophies. The Sith then fled to Ambria in need of healing. The healer who the healer had aided the Sith and then secretly turned his location over to the Jedi. When the Sith recovered, he had realized what the healer had done and brutally murdered the man, leaving his body parts strewn outside. The Jedi checked the rest of the homestead, but found no one else and sensed none through the Force. There was really no other explanation for what happened, given the info that the Jedi had. 
With that, they declared the case closed, gathered Caleb's body for a proper burial, and retrieved the lightsabers from the fallen Jedi to be used in a later memorial. Then they left and fully believed that the Sith had been destroyed for good and all. Zana steals the show. Zana's deception was so successful, it bought the Sith over 800 years of secrecy. The Jedi would believe the Sith were destroyed for 809 years until their survival and the Rule of Two were revealed in 181 BBY during the deathbed confession of a dark Jedi named Kin Jean. When the Jedi departed, Zana came out of hiding and began repairing the ship to depart Ambria since a Sith presence had been confirmed on the planet. After a couple of days, Bane regained consciousness and was relieved to hear what Zana had done to save them. Bane complimented his apprentice on her patience, cunning, and deception, saying he underestimated her before. Zana confessed that Bane still had more to teach her, though she was quick to note that she wouldn't hesitate to kill him when he was of no more use to her. Rule of Two leaves off in 990 with Master and Apprentice preparing to depart Ambria. If you hadn't noticed, Darzana becomes the star in the second novel of the Bane trilogy. For most of the time, Bane is stuck on Ambria doing little more than sulking and waging a constant internal battle with the Orbalisks. It was Zana who taught herself to master Sith magic because Bane didn't know the first thing about it. In so doing, she became the most powerful Sith magic wielder we've seen since Naga Sadao used it to pull two stars together during the Great Hyperspace War in 5000 BBY. It was Zana who incited the Separatists on Sereno because Bane couldn't leave Ambria. And it was Zana whose deception saved her unconscious master and bought the Sith 800 plus years of total secrecy. At just 20 years old, Darth Zana had saved the Order of the Sith Lords, but she wasn't yet ready to betray and usurp her master just yet, believing instead that she still had much to learn. This status quo would hold for 10 more years, but Bane and Zana's relationship would only continue to deteriorate over that time, and by 980, they would have one final showdown to determine the future of the Sith. Darth Bane, Dynasty of Evil, written by Drew Carpitian and published in 2009. The third and final novel of the Darth Bane trilogy is also the final story of our Old Republic narrative. It will spend less time on Dynasty of Evil than we did on Path of Destruction or Rule of Two, not because we have anything against it, but because it's shorter with less external lore to discuss. We don't have to explain the Rusan Reformations or describe how the Rule of Two relates back to previous iterations of the Sith. It's just Bane and Zana dancing around one another until their extremely confusing final clash. The climactic duel between Master and Apprentice takes place across multiple planets, involves third-party intermediaries, and ends with a tiny part of Bane's spirit living within Zana. The ending confused readers because the true winner was debatable and it quickly sparked theories about essence transfer and how long Bane's spirit survived. Less than two weeks after the book's release, Drew Carpitian released a statement about the ending on his personal website and the Jedi Council forums, which was the largest fan site message board in 2009. 
In clarifying the situation, Carpatian said Zano won the duel, but he intended for there to be some ambiguity about how much of Bane survived and hinted that the issue might be revisited later. With the benefit of 11 years of hindsight, we can conclusively say that the issue was never brought back up and the Legends continuity simply treated Darth Bane as being totally and completely dead at the end of Dynasty with Evil. So, without further ado, let's begin the final story of this narrative. Ten years later, like its predecessor, Rule of Two, Dynasty of Evil begins with a ten-year time jump from 990 to 980 BBY. By then, Darth's Bane and Zana had settled on Shirtrick IV, a world in the Outer Rim. Early during this 10-year period, Bane finally completed his holocron into which he had poured all his knowledge. Living under assumed names in a large mansion, they continued to build in secret, amassing greater wealth and more discreet allies. They had each received ritualistic Sith tattoos on their faces, which seemed counterproductive to keeping a low profile. From 989 to 981, Bane continued to teach Zana everything he knew about the Sith and the dark side, but their relationship was strained, and in 980, things would come to a head. By then, Bane was about 46 years old, but his body was aging rapidly due to being constantly immersed in the dark side, a decade wearing orbalisks, and the injuries sustained on Tython. Bane had developed a noticeable tremor in his left hand. To make matters worse, Bane suspected that Zana was afraid to challenge him at the height of his power and was waiting for him to grow even weaker. To Bane, this defeated the purpose of the Rule of Two and the strength the Sith were supposed to embody. The Apprentice wasn't supposed to wait for the Master to get old before attacking. They were supposed to do it when the Master was still strong. This became such a problem for Bane that he began to seek out alternative options to preserve himself and the Sith legacy after death since Zana was clearly not going to follow his doctrine. Bane learned about the dark side ability known as Essence Transfer, which could prolong his life long enough to find and train another apprentice, or so he claimed. Of course, Darth Zana wasn't afraid to challenge her master, and if anything, she was just as committed to the rule of two as Bane was. Indeed, Zana had been confident that she could defeat Bane for a decade, but she held off on challenging him for two reasons. First, she wanted to line up her own Sith apprentice beforehand, and second, she suspected Bane was deceiving her about his true condition to bait out a premature attack to test her. In this way, Bane and Zana moved much closer to their inevitable confrontation. Early in 980 BBY, a Jedi named Med Tandar had been killed on Doan, a mining world in the Outer Rim, and Darth Bane ordered his apprentice to determine who killed a Jedi and why. However, Bane's plan was actually a ruse to get Zana away so he could depart and search for Endedu's holocron, which supposedly held the secret to Essence Transfer. The next day, Bane met with Argyll Tin, a smuggler who fenced illegal Sith artifacts to interested buyers. Bane didn't care much for Tin, but he was the best at finding details on the ancient Sith, so Bane kept using him. This time, Argyll Tin had brought info on the location of Darth Endedu's holocron, which was said to be located on the deep, wor- the deep core world Prakath, and an ancient Sith text mentioning Endedu. 
Bain paid for the info and manuscript, and with his Sith apprentice out of the way, he departed to find Prakath. Bain found Prakath in the deep core region of the galaxy and successfully obtained Endedu's holocron after defeating members of the Malevolence cult who worshipped Endedu as a god. On the return trip to Seutric Four, Bane was able to extract the secret of essence transfer from the holocron. But upon returning to his mansion, Bane realized something was off and was immediately waylaid by a force-sensitive force Iktach assassin and a small cadre of soldiers. Though he was able to kill a few of the soldiers, Bane was stabbed in the shoulder blade by one of the assassins who used a blade coated in a powerful neurotoxin used for large animals. Seconds later, Bane's world closed in on him, and he fell conscious to the floor, but he wasn't dead yet. The Iktach assassin and her remaining soldiers took Bane's unconscious body to Doan, where he was imprisoned by the assassin's benefactor. The benefactor was a woman named Sarah, who also happened to be the daughter of Caleb, the healer from Ambria. Yes, the same daughter who Bane nearly killed in 1000 BBY to force Caleb to heal him. But that wasn't the only part of Bane's past on Doan. Sarah's bodyguard and closest friend was Lucia, a former member of the Gloomwalkers who had served with Bane when his name was still Dessel during the New Sith Wars. As you can imagine, Bane will be thrilled by all of this when he wakes up. Darth Zana, meanwhile, made her own detour. She traveled to Doan, but made little progress on tracking down the dead Jedi's killer before finding evidence that a dark Jedi had been searching for Sith artifacts on the world. Using an informant, Zana learned that the dark Jedi was named Sethearth, and he lived on Nal Hutta. Hoping to find a new apprentice, Zana confronted Hearth in his home, easily defeated defeating and incapacitating him with Sith magic in the short duel that followed. Though it was an easy duel, Zana determined that she would take Sethearth on as an apprentice if he survived and recovered from his wounds. Three days later, Hearth recovered and Zana asked him to become her Sith apprentice. Sethearth agreed, though he was reluctant to do so, rightly fearing that refusal would mean his death. Though Hearth will abandon the Sith soon, Darth Zana's act of formally taking a Sith apprentice was monumental, and that she was asserting she was the new Sith Master who would carry on the Rule of Two. At this point, Zana was openly opposing Bane because she believed it was time to take her place as the Master, but soon this would become a doctrinal dispute too. Upon returning to Siotric Four with Hearth, Zana learned that Bane had gone to Prakath in search of Endedu's holocron. Sethearth then made his only real contribution to the Sith by telling Zana that he had learned of Ondedu before defecting from the Jedi. Hearth said that Ondedu was known for his search for immortality and use of the ability of essence transfer. When she learned this, Zana howled with rage in a tantrum that would have made Bane proud. Zana then declared that Bane was in violation of the Rule of Two, for attempting to find a way to immortality and bypass his apprentice. In doing so, Zana branded Bane a heretic for his sins and effectively excommunicated him from the Order of the Sith Lords. The Sith were a religious order, after all, and orthodoxy must be enforced, or so Darth Zana believed. There was no going back now. Bane and Zana stood in opposition to one another, and only one of them could rule. Of course, 
Bain had been kidnapped, drugged, and imprisoned at this point, so Zana's pronouncements were mostly symbolic at this juncture. After learning Bain had been taken to Doan, Zana and Sathearth departed to face the heretic. On Doan, we finally meet Sarah and Lucia, who have been in and out of the story since the beginning, but we've saved until now to avoid bouncing around too much. So let's back up and put everything into place because both Sarah and Lucia have connections to Bane before they meet one another. Back in 1003 and 1002 BBY, Lucia had served with Bane, then called by his birth name Desil, as a member of the elite Gloomwalkers during the New Sith Wars. During the Battle of Fasira in 1002, Bane punched their commanding officer, disobeyed orders, and led the elite team to help secure a Sith victory. For this, he was arrested, led away to a court-martial, and the Sith Walkers assumed, the Gloomwalkers assumed his execution. They mourned the loss of their comrade Dessel. After the wars ended, Lucia became a prisoner of war until the Senate pardoned all conventional soldiers after the Rusan Reformations. Sarah, on the other hand, was the daughter of Caleb of Ambria. In 1000 BBY, Sarah was tortured and nearly killed by Bane to induce Caleb to help. Caleb agreed to heal Bane to save Sarah's life. Sometime later, after she was grown, Sarah left Ambria and lived as a wandering healer for years, never spending too much time in one place. In 987, Sarah was working on a, as a nurse on Bandamere and saved the life of a bounty hunter named Lucia. After she recovered, Lucia pledged herself to protect Sarah to repay the debt. At some point after this, Sarah was called to Doan to heal the crown prince, Garen. Sarah worked her magic, and after a few months, she fell in love with the prince and she fell in love with the prince and agreed to marry him, provided Lucia was would be allowed would be also be given a place to stay. Good heavens. Sarah and Garen were happily married until early 980 when Doan's royal family picked a fight with the planet's mining guild. The conflict escalated quickly as the miners fought back against imprison, imprisonment, torture, and summary executions. They all This all culminated with the guild killing Garen during an attempted kidnapping for, for leverage. Her husband's death sent Sarah into a spiral, and Lucia, out of concern for her best friend, hired a force-sensitive Iktach assassin known as the Huntress to target the leader of the miners. Unfortunately for everyone involved, Jedi Knight Med Tandar was dispatched to me- mediate the mining dispute and was working with the mining guild leaders when the assassin arrived. In the ensuing fight, Med Tandar and all the guild leaders were killed by the Huntress, which is the act that kickstarted this whole mess going in the first place. After the Jedi was murdered, Lucia confessed to Sarah that she had hired the assassin, but Sarah refused to turn in her oldest friend. Instead, Sarah and Lucia visited the Jedi on Coruscant as a means of smoothing things over and explaining that the attacker had not been hired by the royal family of Dawn. While on this diplomatic mission, Sarah inadvertently learned of her father's fate. During a tour of the Jedi Temple, Sarah, Lucia, and her, their guides passed a memorial statue to five individuals slain in 990. The four Jedi, Bane and Zana, killed on Tython and a healer who murdered on Ambria. A Jedi Master described the Jedi version of events from Ambria. They found Caleb murdered by Dorovit, who they believed to be Darth Bane, who had murdered Caleb and was slain in turn after he attacked the Jedi in a fit of insane rage. 
But Sarah remembered what Bane looked like, and it didn't match the Jedi description. Bane was a tall, broad-shouldered man, not a short, slender, former hermit, but the Jedi didn't know that, and Sarah didn't tell them. She wanted her own personal revenge against Bane. In secret, Sarah explained everything to Lucia and asked her friend to rehire the Huntress to track down Darth Bane. As we saw earlier, the Huntress ambushed and captured Bane on Sutric 4 and brought him back to Doan. Alright, so now everything is caught up and all our parties are converging on Doan, where Darth Bane is imprisoned and drugged in one of the royal family's prisons. For three days, Bane is kept in a drug-induced coma before Sarah interrogated her prisoner. But Sarah found that Bane wasn't sorry for what he had done, and he also denied killing Caleb. Before he lost consciousness from more drugs again, Lucia recognized Bane as her old commander from the Gloomwalkers and became very conflicted about the whole ordeal. She was sure that Bane had done awful things, but she also believed he hadn't killed Caleb and that she owed him her life. So she did the only sensible thing. She freed him and left him unconscious in his cell. A Clash of Sith After Lucia freed Bane, she descended the stairways to the she ascended the stairways to the Dune Royal Palace, which lay directly above the underground prison. Lucia went to find Sarah and tried to talk her down from her murderous rage. Lucia believed that she still owed Bane her life after he had saved her and the rest of the Gloomwalkers with heroics during the battles of Kashyyyk and Fasira. How those things translate into Lucia letting the guy go despite her friendship with Sarah and knowing that he did awful things to attain his position is anyone's guess, but we digress. As Lucia was running to find Sarah, Darth Xana and her would-be Sith apprentice Set Hearth arrived on Doan. Zana had come to settle things with Bane the only way a Sith Master and Apprentice can, a trial by combat. Whoever wins will control the future of the Sith. Harth was ordered to guard the ship while Zana went in search of Bane. Right about now, Bane is waking up in his cell, confused by his freedom from his restraints. Without thinking, Bane opened the cell door, which set off alarm klaxons throughout the prison and the Dome Royal Palace above it. Upon hearing this, Lucia knew the jig was up and began to panic after learning that the Huntress had informed Sarah of her treachery in freeing Bane. Lucia heard Sarah screaming and ran in that direction, but encountered Bane at one of the surface-level exits. Bane demanded to know why she had freed him, and Lucia revealed her identity as his former subordinate. Lucia believed that this was a secret, but Bane had recognized her early on. He just didn't care. Finally, finally, Lucia said that she owed Bane her life and that it was his to take if he wanted. Bane prepared to do so, but Zana arrived on the scene first and unleashed a wave of force energy at them. Bane deflected the blast with a bubble of force energy, but Lucia was not so lucky. The blast threw her off her feet and 30 meters down the stairway entrance Bane had just emerged from. Lucia's bodies hit the hallway walls, cracking many of her bones, and her skull was smashed on the steps, killing her on impact. She was the first casualty of Bane and Zana's duel to the death, but she would not be the last. A Duel Interrupted before the duel continued on the streets outside the royal palace, Bane and Zana had a war of words. 
They accused one another of a litany of sins, many of which were just personal grievances dressed up as doctrinal disputes. Let's be clear, both Bane and Zana are true believers in the order of the Sith Lords and the Rule of Two, but they also just plain hated one another by 980. At some point in the past 20 years, they may have had something resembling a close bond, but that was long gone by now. Hell, the second novel, Rule of Two, made it clear that Bane is one of the shittiest dads around, even by Star Wars standards. And Zana knew it too. Bane called Zana a coward for betraying the Rule of Two by waiting to challenge him until he was no longer at the height of his power. Zana countered, claiming that Bane was using this as a convenient excuse to grab even more power for himself by living forever through the power of essence transfer. With the mutual excommunications out of the way, Darth Zana noticed that Bane was without his lightsaber and immediately charged with her double-bladed lightsaber activated. But Bane wasn't helpless and unleashed a torrent of force lightning that Zana dissipated with a twirl of her lightsaber. Zana reasserted control immediately, putting Bane on the defensive and backing him back into the stairwell and into the prison hallways. Bane was cornered on a couple of occasions, but was able to deflect Zana's attacks with the Force. Meanwhile, somewhere above the dueling Sith, Sarah found the mangled body of her dearly departed friend, Lucia, and she broke down. Sarah realized that revenge wasn't the answer, and she had only brought destruction upon herself and those she loved. Sarah grabbed the body of her friend, activated the palace's self-destruct mechanism, and fled to a ship at the nearby spaceport, leaving the planet. Activation set off alarms through the facility, briefly distracting Zana and Bane. Attempting to gain the advantage, Bane fired a bolt of force lightning at Zana, but hit the wall behind her, inadvertently setting off one of the explosions hidden in a hallway wall. Now, separated by meteors of rubble, the two Sith Lords attempted to escape Doan. A duel of would-be apprentices. While Bane and Zana were dueling, Set Hearth was weighing his options. On the one hand, the Sith did have an allure about them, and power was always something he had wanted, but at the same time, he really wanted to leave because he wasn't right for the job and had been roped into it by Zana in the first place. Harth feared that, Zane, that Zana or Bane would hunt him down relentlessly, but ended up swayed by the lure of immortality. Set Harth reached out into the forest to find Zana, but sent something strange within the prison and followed the Force signature to the holocron of Darth and Dedu, which had been confiscated from Bane. Knowing of Endedu's proficiency in essence transfer, Hearth decided he'd prefer eternal life to serving Zana and probably dying at her hand anyway. So he snuck into the prison, stole the holocron, and then made for the spaceport hangar about the time Sarah initiated the facility's self-destruct sequence. Five ships remained, and Seth Set Hearth intended to steal one and get as far away from Bane and Zana and the Sith as he possibly could. But it wouldn't be that simple as the Huntress stepped in to stop Hearth from stealing her ship. The Huntress chased Set Hearth all over the hangar, but was unable to catch her prey as he continually hid behind ships and harried her pursuit. At one point, Hart Hearth threw his lightsaber, barely missing the Huntress and shearing the end off of one of the two large horns that protrude downward from each side of the head of all members of the Iktachi species. By this time, however, the pitch of the alarm changed and both the Huntress and Hearth realized that the coming explosion would destroy the area surrounding the royal palace for many kilometers. 
at this, they agreed that they would never survive, that they would never survive if they kept fighting, and the Huntress allowed Harth to escape within Dedu's holocron. For his part, Harth made good his escape, going into hiding under an assumed name to avoid possible reprisals. Set Harth would eventually learn the ability of essence transfer and use it to extend his lifespan hundreds of years by transferring his spirit between clones of himself once they turned 30. Set Harth died many, many years later and is the only one in this story who gets anything close to a happy ending. A worthy apprentice. Back on Doan, the Huntress was about to escape in her ship, but Darth Bane arrived in the hangar looking for transport. The Huntress knew that Bane was still unhappy about being kidnapped on Sutric 4, but she also believed that Bane and the Sith could give her life purpose by guiding her toward her true destiny. Bane approached the ship looking for revenge, but the Huntress had other ideas and immediately bowed to Bane presenting both his lightsaber and holocron, which he had stolen from Sarah earlier. The Dark Lord of the Sith was still unconvinced, but the Huntress offered her shuttle, the last functional one in the hangar, and the location of Sarah. Bane accepted, and they fled the ship, leaving just before the detonation at the Royal Palace blew a hole in the side of the planet Doan. The palace, prison, and surrounding city were all obliterated in the explosion, or when buildings collapsed afterward. In the ship, the Huntress piloted them toward Ambria, Sarah's childhood home and current location. The Huntress was able to divine this through the Force as all members of the Itachi species are born Force-sensitive and with precognitive abilities. The Huntress's abilities were more powerful than most, and the Force often showed her glimpses of the current actions of beings she would interact with, even if she didn't know them, didn't yet know them. She's already used this powerful ability twice in the story. The first time was when she tracked Bane to Citric 4 after seeing visions of the world, and it was how she knew that Lucia freed Bane without being in the cell when it happened. Sensing her power in the Force and impressed by her precognitive abilities, Bane had his new apprentice kneel before him. There, hurtling through hyperspace, Bane formalized their relationship, naming the young Iktachi assassin his Sith apprentice and dubbing her Darth Cognus. Get it? because she's precognitive, on Ambria, Bane and Cognus found Sarah in her father's old homestead. Sarah bravely confronted the Sith Lords, but was killed by Cognus the instant she proved to be of no further use. Sarah was buried in a shallow grave on Ambria next to the body of her friend, Lucia. She went on a quest for revenge, so she should have known she'd need to dig two graves. Homecoming Cognus was eager to train, but Bane, ever the fundamentalist, stated that he had to deal with Zana first. Dynasty of Evil goes to great lengths to show that Bane was only seeking the ability of essence transfer to preserve himself long enough to train a new apprentice as his body was rapidly decaying. But it's hard to believe that a Sith Lord would only be seeking the secret to immortality to pass knowledge on to a new apprentice. He's really just going to preserve himself for a few years to teach a new apprentice and die. He's not going to preserve himself any longer, and he's just willingly going to relinquish power. Well, we're not buying it. His actions at the end of the duel also seem to undermine this defense, but we'll get there. Regardless, Bane refused to train Cognus until he had dealt with Zana and sent his former apprentice an encrypted message and invited her to Ambria. 
Upon Zona's arrival, Cognus conveniently declared her neutrality in the fight, stating that she would serve as the apprentice to the winner. With that, all the loose ends in the novel have been tied up except for the question of who will rule the Sith. For 20 years, Darth Bane and Darth Zana built the Order of the Sith, Lord as, Sith Lords as Master and Apprentice, but that's all over now. Zana believed that Bane violated his own rule of two by attempting to achieve immortality, took her own apprentice, she then took her own apprentice and named herself the Sith Master. Conversely, Bane believed that Zana violated the Rule of Two by waiting to challenge her master, so he found the secret of es essence transfer and took on a new apprentice himself. They now stood on opposite sides of a doctrinal dispute that would claim one of their lives, and there was no turning back. If either backed away now, it would be a sign of weakness and make them unfit to rule the Sith. There was a little else to discuss. All that remained was an honored duel to the death. They would settle their score on Ambria, the world where the world where they called home was, the world that they called home as master and apprentice for ten years, the world where Bane had almost died in one thousand and then again in nine ninety BBY, the world where the world where we met Nomi Sunrider and Master Thon three thousand nineteen years before. And the world where our old Republic narrative ends in 980 BBY. Lightsabers at dusk. As the sun set on Ambria's horizon, Bane and Zana each ignited their lightsabers, three blood red blades glowing brightly against the fading twilight as it morphed into dusk. They stood facing one another on a dusty ridge outside of Caleb's old homestead as Cognus watched silently. Zana and Bane sized each other up one last time, like they had a thousand times before. Darzana shifted her feet into the defensive, Form 3 posture she favored so heavily due to her small frame. Darth Bane assumed his familiar aggressive stance, the one that had seen him slay hundreds of foes before. There would be no more posturing, no more saber rattling. As dusk fell on Ambria, red lightsabers were readied and the final duel began. Bane made the first move, sprinting towards Zana and slamming down powerful overhead strikes in an attempt to break her guard. Moving effortlessly between combat forms, Bane pushed his former apprentice back by using several techniques they never practiced, surprising Zana just like Kasim had done to him during their duel on Rakata Prime. But if Zana's defense broke, it was only for an instant before she regained composure and forced Bane back with stabbing thrusts and jabs of her lightsaber. It was at this moment that Zana realized that by fully relying on her lightsaber, she was playing into Bane's hand since he was such a prodigious warrior in close combat. Zana quickly began to switch her strategy to use Sith magic against Bane since she had mastered the art and Bane was less than a novice at it. The diminutive Sith Lord backed away briefly to divide her attention between defense and gathering force energy to unleash her magic. Bane was quick to see her plan and closed the gap between them, breaking Zana's concentration. As she attempted to back away, her attention was too divided to notice Sarah's shallow grave, and Zana tripped over the freshly turned soil. Bane pounced immediately, kicking and slashing at his fallen opponent. Though Zana successfully deflected Bane's lightsaber, he broke one of her ribs after one of his kicks landed. Zana used the force to regain her footing and push Bane back, but every motion and every breath filled her with pain from the broken rib.
black magic woman. Still needing space to work her magic and fearing Bane would immediately press his advantage, Zana began leaping and flipping backward in an attempt to generate distance, but the effort tired and pained her greatly. Bane, for his part, wasn't pursuing just yet, preferring to let Zana's overexertion be her undoing. This tactic was also perilous, however, as giving Zana space to tire herself out meant giving Zana space, and enough space would give Zana time to conjure her magic, which would spell the end for Bane. He was not proficient with Sith magic in any way, and he had feared Zana might use it against him when she first studied Friedenad's Sith holocron in 1000 BBY. He now realized he should have just attacked in the first damn place. Bane rushed to Zana, attempting to close the gap before she could unleash her sorcery, but it was not to be. Bane's momentary triumph in allowing Zana to tire herself would be his undoing. Zana fought through agonizing pain to conjure her insanity spell, attempting to imprint images of Bane's deepest fears on his mind. For an instant, Bane's charge was halted as he fought Zana's psychic attacks, but the Dark Lord of the Sith had mastered his fears many years before and was able to push the images out of his mind permanently with a blast of dark side energy. The blast, the blast emanated from Bane's body as a wave of force, ener- as a wave of force energy, knocking Zana back about ten, about ten more meters and breaking more bones in the process. Rising to her feet, Zana saw Bane begin to charge again and knew that she was too physically weakened to withstand another barrage from the hulking Sith Lord. She needed the full power of the dark side and she tapped and she tapped into it using the dark side nexus that had existed on Ambria for so long that even Master Thon could not exercise it. Zana drew on this wellspring of darkness and used her Sith magic to summon Dark, dark tendrils of pure dark side energy from Ambria's surface. The, these dark manifestations appeared as serpentine tendrils of grasping, writhing black mist that rose from the ground. Stretching out through the forest, Zana had full control of the tendrils and she immediately struck out at Bane. Darth Bane was still mid-sprint when the tendrils were summoned and he slowed down to fight them off using force lightning. Despite Darth Zana's onslaught, Bane was all in on close quarters combat and he continued to press forward. Even Bane's prejudice skill with force lightning was of little use outside of defense as mid-range combat would allow Zana to overwhelm him with Sith magic. Thus, Bane pushed forward out of sheer will to live, but Zana called forth more tendrils, swarming her former master. The air crackled between them as Bane deflected the tendrils with force lightning, but one finally connected with Bane, and he was knocked off his feet by the pain. The tendril had only glanced his shoulder, but the excruciating pain was the worst agony Bane had ever suffered, far worse than the Orbalice or being struck with his own deflected force lightning on Tython. Fighting the pain, Bane rose to his feet and charged once again, deflecting and dodging tendrils as he went. Closing the last few meters between them, Bane lunged with the force and disarmed Zana, knocking her to the ground. The hulking Sith Lord raised his lightsaber to deliver the killing blow, but Zana was still manifesting and controlling the tendrils. In the split second before Bane brought his weapon down, one of the tendrils fully connected, grasping his blade hand. Now the true effects of the tendrils became apparent as Bane's hand was turned to ash in an instant. The tendrils could disintegrate living flesh, 
turning a full-grown human to ash in seconds in some cases. Bane dropped to his knees in pain and shock, but once again his nearly indomitable willpower reared its ugly head. Bane refused to die and decided that his only option was to use Essence Transfer to place his spirit within Zana's host body. Say what you will about Darth Bane, the man was constitutionally incapable of accepting death or his own mortality. Instead, Bane reached out to embrace immortality, in this case, quite literally. The Cold Embrace of Death Fixing his eyes upon his enemy, Bane used his one remaining hand to grab one of Zana's wrists and initiate the process of essence transfer. This required Bane to so thoroughly dominate Zana's will that her spirit would be purged from her body, that her spirit would be purged and her body would become a hollowed out shell that could be used as a host for Bane's spirit. It's a risky strategy, however, as failure would mean certain inescapable death for Bane. One of their souls would be banished to the nether realm of the forest to suffer eternally in chaos, which is kind of like hell for Sith Lords, but also not really. Now listen, we're way too late in the game to start delving into chaos now, so we'll just move on. Soon, more tendrils had reached Bane's body, turning it to ash, but he wasn't dead just yet. Bane's spirit entered Zana's body, and there the two fought one final time for supremacy of the Sith and Zana's physical body. The struggle within Zana's mind lasted for mere moments, but it was fierce. Bane and Zana are two of the more stubborn Sith to ever live, each made of Mandalorian iron. So it came down to a test of willpower, and though we've seen Bane cling to life through his sheer stubborn resolve on more than one occasion, it was not to be this time. Using essence transfer is hard to do under optimal circumstances, and Bane's spirit was now inside Zana's body after his physical body had turned to ash. And of course there's Zana. Her will was always a match for Bane's, and to put it bluntly, she had surpassed her master. She probably could have challenged and defeated him ten years earlier, but believed he still had more to teach. By now, however, that was no longer the case, and after their momentary stalemate, Darth Zana overwhelmed Darth Bane's willpower and drove his spirit from her body, permanently sending it into the void. In a flash, Bane was dead, totally, permanently, irrevocably dead. His body was turned to ash, and his soul had been banished to the nether realm of the Force. All that remained was a tiny fragment of Bane's spirit imprinted on Zana's mind, and though he would never regain physical form, Bane's imprint left a lasting legacy as Zana developed a constant tremor in her left, left hand, just like Bane had in his final years. The Rise of Darth Zana A few moments later, Zana came to and realized that she was still alive. The clash of wills with Bane had left her disoriented, but Zana regained her composure and rose to her feet. As she did, Darth Cognus approached, calling out Bane's name, expecting him to have survived. But Zana confidently stated that Bane was dead and gone. Cognus came forward and knelt, professing her allegiance to the Order of the Sith Lords and Darth Zana as her Sith Master. Zana, having realized that she made an error in choosing set hearth and sensing the Iktachi's power in the Force, accepted Darth Cognus as her apprentice. For her first act as a fully-fledged Sith apprentice, Zana ordered Cognus to retrieve Bane's lightsaber from the ashen heap that had once bent his body. 
Zana stated that Cognus would use it until she could build her own, which would be made of components from Bane's old lightsaber. Darzana then declared that they would uphold Bane's rule of two so that the Sith and Bane's legacy could endure permanently. This might seem like a surprise given her utter hatred of her former master, but Zana was as much a fundamentalist as Bane, and her devotion to the rule of two was unflinching. Even though they had just fought a duel to the death, Zana never even considered abandoning the rule of two, and was instead determined to honor Bane's legacy by perpetuating the doctrine. Indeed, the rule of two had worked out just as intended. The master taught his apprentice everything he could, and then his apprentice defeated him in the duel, proving herself to be more powerful, and thus the rightful ruler of the Order of the Sith Lords, just like Bane first ordained. He claimed that the rule of two was intended to ensure that the strongest Sith ruled, so they could one day bring about the end of the Jedi and the Republic, which is exactly what happened. Despite the whole dying thing, Bane would probably have been proud to see his rule of two implemented so thoroughly. As Dynasty of Evil closes in 980 BBY, we see Darth Zana and her apprentice Darth Cognus preparing to depart Ambria and continue building the Sith in secret. From here to the prequels. As we said, Dynasty of Evil marks the conclusion of our Old Republic narrative, but it seemed rather abrupt to just leave it there without contextualizing the story further. The novel ends in 980 BBY, 20 years after the fall of the Old Republic, and still 94 years before the birth of Yoda, to give you a little context for where we are. After 980, the Galactic Republic continued to expand. The Rusan Reformations had done their job by stabilizing the government under the newly formed Galactic Republic. Yes, there were still holdouts and small separatist groups that formed like those we met on Sereno. However, concerted opposition never materialized because the Sith secretly eliminated any group that got too powerful, but, it, but that briefly changed for the last stand of the Mandalorians. For centuries, the Mandalorians refused to rejoin the Republic following Rusan Reformations. The issue came to a head in 738 BBY when the Republic, forced, uh, when the Republic and Jedi formed a task force to launch preemptory strikes against the Mandalorians to stop them from becoming a focal point for dissent. Orbital, orbital bombardments devastated several worlds and killed hundreds of thousands of civilians, and a caretaker government was installed. The utter annihilation of Mandalorian society that Revan had wrought 3,222 years before at Malachor V was finally completed in an event that became known as the Mandalorian Excision. The Republican Jedi added yet another dark mark to their histories, but these war crimes had their intended effect, ensuring that the Mandalorians would never become a threat again. The Jedi Order, for its part, continued to serve as the defenders of peace and justice. As was their want, the Jedi acted as well-intentioned galactic protectors, but were oblivious as the Republic slid deeper into inequality and corruption, and the Sith operated in the shadows. As the centuries passed, the era became a golden age for the Republic, but the problems were always there, just under the surface should anyone care to look. Over time, the Golden Age morphed into something else, and the Republic and Jedi began to stagnate, ultimately leading to the bloated institutions we see toppled in the prequel trilogy. And we all know how that final act plays out. Revenge of the Sith. Finally, there's the Sith. 
In many ways, this entire podcast has been about recurring Sith uprisings and how the galaxy deals with each one. So it's somewhat fitting that we end the narrative on the Sith. Then again, the Darth Bane trilogy was all about the Sith, and they're the last stories in the Old Republic era, so it was also the logical conclusion. When Darth Zana elected to perpetuate the rule of two in 980, it cemented Darth Bane's legacy as the founder of the Order of the Sith Lords. Bane's rule of two had survived to and been honored by subsequent the subsequent generation and centuries later it would succeed in its main goal of destroying the republic and jedi this was only possible because the sith were able to operate in secret following zana's ingenious deception on ambria in 990 for 809 years thereafter the sith were able to use the wealth of bane and zana accumulated to build a powerful network of allies and stoke galactic dissent without the jedi ever suspecting a thing. And then, even when the survival of the Sith was revealed by the dying words of a dark Jedi named Kib Jean in 181 BBY, most Jedi dismissed it as the ravings of a madman. 149 years later, the Jedi began to take this warning seriously after Qui-Gon Jinn's death in The Phantom Menace, but by then it was far too late. A secret Sith Lord had already ascended to the highest rungs of power using their network of allies and a full Separatist rebellion fueled by secret Sith backing, was about to erupt. Finally, in 19 BBY, 981 years and about 30 Sith Lords after Bane founded the Rule of Two, Darth Sidious took his own apprentice in Darth Vader, issued Order 66, declared the First Galactic Empire, and destroyed the Jedi Order. The Order of the Sith Lords had achieved their goals, and the Rule of Two had been fully vindicated. All of Darth Bane's struggles to destroy the Brotherhood of Darkness and achieve Sith orthodoxy had not been in vain. In many ways, Bane's rule of two finally allowed for the Dark Jedi who formed the original Sith Empire in 6900 BBY to have some measure of revenge against the Jedi 6881 years later. Then again, we also know how this story of Sith victory turns out for them in the end. With that, Series 9, which covered the new Sith Wars, the fall of the Old Republic, and the rise of Darth Bane's Rule of Two, concludes. As we said in Episode 9.0, everything from 2000 to 980 BBY was created to explain the apparent contradiction in the stated age of the Republic between A New Hope and the prequels. As post-hoc retcons go, it has its moments. Kara Holt and Knight Errant are fun, Zana is a great character, and the Bane trilogy is entertaining, if nothing else. Then again, it's hard to escape the fact that, even as post-hoc retcons go, the Rule of Two has major issues. Bane betrayed the Brotherhood of Darkness in their hour of victory, sacrificing Sith rule across the galaxy for his Rule of Two. And what did it get? And what did it get him and the other Sith in return? Nine hundred and eighty-one years of meticulous planning undone after just twenty-three years by a hick and an X-wing and some indigenous teddy bears. Any way you look at it, twenty-three years is a shitty return on investment for nearly one thousand years of planning. Then again, every story in the Old Republic is, in some way, a post-hoc retcon of events alluded to in Obi-Wan's ex exposition about the Jedi having been protectors of peace and justice for over a thousand generations in A New Hope. And much like the new Sith Wars, the Old Republic has its moments. We had Tales of the Jedi, KOTOR, KOTOR 2, and more. 
But then there's the stuff that had issues, like the Lost Tribe of the Sith and some things in Swotor. In short, it appears that the new Sith Wars are something of a microcosm of the wider Old Republic, which, as we all know, is a land of contrast. When we started the series, we had two goals, to tell every standalone story in the Old Republic and to look forward to the Old Republic stories to come in canon. And with this episode, 9.4, and this episode, 9.4, means we've completed our first goal. As of now, we've told every standalone story in the Old Republic, and that brings our narrative to an end. But it would be dreadfully rude of us to not complete our second goal by discussing what we know and what we think we know about the future of the Old Republic in canon. That's why there will be one more episode, 9.5, for us to meet our second goal of the show as we discuss everything we know about the canon Old Republic, including talk of a potential KOTOR movie adaptation. So join us next time as we cap off the narrative in style with one final episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will look forward to the future canonical Old Republic. You can follow us on Twitter at Photorpod, or you can email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to send us questions or comments, now is the time to do so, and we can still answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. I guess, uh, I guess, uh, sending them after that wouldn't be very helpful, now would it? Uh, anyway, I'm at Lucas Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the force be with you. <laughs>